I'm Neha Gandhi, CEO of Girlboss, and your host for this week's episode. If I were to tell you that I knew President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama, would your ears perk up? I don't. But today's guest in the show does. Valerie Jarrett has known the Obamas for 28 years, since, well, before they were the Obamas. It all started in 1991 when Valerie interviewed Michelle Obama, then Michelle Robinson, for a job. Little did she know that that introduction to Michelle Robinson, and later to Barack Obama, would lead to a relationship with a family that's lasted almost three decades. Today, Valerie Jarrett holds the distinction of being the longest-serving senior advisor to any president in history. After having served as senior advisor to President Obama all eight years of his presidency. She currently is senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and sits on the board of directors for companies like Lyft and the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts and so many others. And she recently wrote a book, Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward, which chronicles her journey from being a quiet girl in segregated Chicago to being one of the most visible and influential African-American women of the 21st century. Welcome to Girl Boss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. During my chat with Valerie Jarrett, we spoke about how President Obama fostered a culture where anyone could speak up in the White House, why we have a responsibility to ask for what we need and bring our whole selves to work, and why being yourself and owning your voice is a win for everyone. Here's our conversation. So, Valerie Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us here on Girl Boss Radio today. I'm delighted to be here. Just the audience I wanted a chance to to address. Oh, amazing. Uh, so, I want to start by talking a little bit about success because you've obviously already had a lot of success. You have gone to some of the most amazing schools in the world, the University of Michigan for law school, Stanford for your undergrad. You've worked at a big law firm. You've worked for two history-defining mayors in Chicago, and you worked in the Obama White House for the full eight years as a senior advisor. That's a lot. I'm curious, today, after all of that is behind you, what does success mean in your skin, in your place where you live today? Well, that's a very interesting question. And thank you for the kind comments about my rather long and circuitous career. I think where I am today is after I left the Obama administration, I took a look back over the course of my career and I thought to myself, what are the issues that I care most about? And where did I think I could throw myself into those issues and continue to make a difference? And I've had the privilege of serving in government at the local level. I've had the privilege of serving on not-for-profit boards from chairing the Medical Center at the University of Chicago to being on the board of the Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago. And then I've had the privilege of serving in the White House. Uh, But service to what end is the question I ask myself. And the issues that I care most about are, number one, gender equity. And early in my career, I was a single working mother, but I was a lawyer, so I had means and I could afford childcare. And my parents lived in the same neighborhood with me and took my daughter to school every day. My dad did. I had everything going for me, and I still felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so I used to think, well, what about 
those working parents who don't have the support system I do, who are working a minimum wage job and are worried about where they're leaving their children through no fault of their own, I want to fight for them. And so when I was in the White House, I chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. And when we left, decided to create the United State of Women, which is a not-for-profit organization fighting for gender equity and lifting up what people are doing on the ground to close that gap and, and create a level playing field. So that's one of the successes I'm looking forward to in the future. Uh, I'm also working with Michelle Obama with, on a new organization called When We All Vote that's nonpartisan but designed to change the culture in our country around voting and get everybody to vote. Uh, you know, there are lots of other issues that I care about, like criminal justice reform and ending gun violence. And so I am using my experience uh, to try to move the needle on the issues that I am most passionate about. And that, to me, defines my success. Wow. Um, that's a bit, that's a high bar for success. Well, you know what? We all can achieve those high bars. And part of where um, I told my story early in the book is where I didn't really have a high bar and I didn't really feel motivated. And I had a career that was prestigious to many, but unfulfilling to me. And it's that quiet voice inside of ourselves that we sometimes ignore. And I, I wanted people to understand that when I stopped ignoring that voice and when I decided to do something outside of my comfort zone, which was leaving that big law firm and joining city government, that's when the adventure became real for me. And that's when the magic started and I built relationships and had experience that shaped the rest of my career. But I had to make up my mind that I was going to listen to myself and do something that seemed unconventional. But now when I look back, it makes perfectly good sense. And what was it inside of you? Like, what was that emotional journey that happened in you to push you from that comfort zone, from that safe space into this adventure that really defined the rest of your career? Misery. <laughs> I was very, very unhappy. And I thought to myself, I, I'm not an unhappy person. And I just thought this must be somebody else's life because it's not the life I'd ever hoped for myself. And so I often think, well, I'm glad I was as miserable as I was, because if I had been less miserable, maybe I would have just wallowed in that for the rest of my career. And that would be a sad state. So I and I also had a friend who encouraged me. And I think we all need people in our lives who see us and can observe back to us what they're what they're noticing. And my friend said, you're not fulfilled. Why don't you be a part of something bigger than yourself? And government service had done that for him. And so he encouraged me to consider doing it for myself. And there, you know, I took a cut in pay. I went from a beautiful office to a cubicle facing the alley. But I felt as though I was doing something purposeful that would help the citizens of Chicago. And I learned to find my voice originally advocating for them. And I became tenacious. And my father heard me negotiating on the telephone with a developer who was trying to build something in the city. And he's like, what happened to my delicate little blue flower, he used to call me. And I said, she's gone. I have to fight for the people of Chicago. And that was the beginning of learning how to fight for anyone. And then I also learned to advocate for myself. And that, that was harder for me. It was very easy for me to fight on behalf of people who I didn't think had a seat at the table and who hadn't been represented well. It was a lot harder for me to speak up for myself. And 
how how did that transform in you? Because your book is called Finding My Voice, and you talk a little bit about how, you know, you started out painfully shy, and it makes sense that, you know, your dad would have called you his delicate blue flower. But that, as a shy kid myself, like, that feels like a lifelong journey that, you know, silencing that voice of like, oh, like, don't say that out loud. This is not your moment. Like, think about it before you speak. Have you been able to silence that voice? Have you transformed yourself in service of yourself? What a lovely way to put it. Uh, Yes, I have, because now I don't seem to be able to stop talking. I'm talking all the time. (laughs) But it took practice. And I think even in law school, when I was an adult, I shied away from speaking publicly. I would blush. I could feel my cheeks burning as soon as I opened my mouth. And I didn't speak in a confident voice. And my mother helped. She's like, just because you're nervous doesn't mean other people have to know you're nervous. And so I started pretending outwardly that I wasn't nervous. And then I had a job where uh, it turned out public speaking was a part of the job. And I hadn't known that before I accepted the job. And the first speech I gave, my hands were all perspiry. And I'd written on a note card what I wanted to say. And the ink blurred all over my hand. And I couldn't read the notes. And it was a disaster. But you know what? I got through it. And so I I think we're all a work in progress. You find your voice and then there's always something that in the back of your mind might make you lose it for a second and then you have to you have to work at it. You have to work at it perpetually. And then just trying to get better at it and recognizing that the the shyness will dissipate once you feel confident about your, what you're doing. And that's what happened to me after I spoke enough times and I my confidence grew. I thought I could connect with an audience. And then lo and behold, I was no longer blushing. I love that. It comes down to preparation, I suppose, really feeling ready. Preparation, hard work, and practice. You talked a little bit about being a work in progress. And I'm curious about what you're working on now. You have accomplished so much as a leader. You've accomplished so much as a speaker. You've overcome this sort of shyness and found your voice. What's the next thing that you want to improve in yourself? Well, I think I have to be mindful of my time and not say yes to absolutely everything. And I'm still so flattered when people ask me to do something that I I overcommit. And, And I think all of us have to take a hard look regularly and say, is this realistic? Can I be really good at everything I've committed to doing? And if not, begin to learn to say, I really can't make three trips to California in one week. Uh, But part of it is, you know, you get to a certain age and you go, all right, I only have but so much time in my life and we should have that attitude our entire lives. What am I going to do every single day to be purposeful? And so being kind of true to myself and my values and my, my true north is important, but I also need to recognize that I can't do everything. That's such a hard lesson, I think, for so many women to learn. We hear that from our community all the time, right? A lot of them are young founders. They're just starting out. They want to say yes to everything. And then they look around after this sort of high at the top of the roller coaster where everything's going well, and they're getting sick. They're not taking care of themselves. Do you have any advice for women who are trying to be more mindful of that, of trying to push themselves to say no? Yes. Look, you have to have self-care. It has to be a part of your routine. You can't put that off. And you have to figure out what grounds and centers you. And for me, it's my family and my close friends. I don't have any siblings. And so 
the siblings I have chosen are the ones that are most important to me. And I surround myself with good people. And so when I was in Chicago, every Saturday I'd have lunch with the same group of friends when I moved to D.C. I had brunch every Sunday. I would have dinner with my family on Sunday nights. And that once a week uh, replenishment was good for me. I, I also think we have to build exercise into our routine, not just because it's good for our body, but I think it also gives you a sense of you're doing something for you. And when I was a young mom, I used to get up really early before my daughter woke up and I would go and work out while she was still sleeping. And no matter what happened the rest of the day, I knew I had had that precious time built in just for me. And the other thing I say, and this is particularly to working moms, is you can't think that you're superhuman. And I was trying to be the perfect lawyer, the perfect mother, the perfect spouse. And I wouldn't ask for help. And I wouldn't admit to anybody, not even to myself, that it was hard. I was pretending that I could do it all effortlessly. And that's ridiculous. It's all hard. And so you and you also have to be open about why it's so difficult so that people who are in a position to make it easier for you know what they need to do. And I think for um, young women, sometimes it's hard to speak up and say, this is what I need in order to thrive. And you have to look at yourself as it's not, you're not just selling yourself, but wherever you're working and if you're in your own business, you're creating your own culture. And that culture has to be one where people are comfortable being themselves. And I say to people, if you have to lie about who you are, in your place of work, and you're able to find a new place of work, move on. Now, some people have no choice in where they are, and then they need champions who are fighting for them, which is why issues like equal pay and workplace flexibility, paid leave, we're the only developed country to, that doesn't have a national paid leave program, uh, sick days, oh, environment free from sexual harassment, a healthy culture, all of these are not just good to do for women. I think there are business imperatives if you want to compete in this global marketplace. And so culture matters. And I, and I think that the only way we can shape a culture is if the people who are directly impacted speak up. Fair. Do you think that those are policy changes? I mean, do you think that we can make meaningful change on things like fair play and sick days at the corporate level and that'll be enough or it has to come from our governments? I don't think it's either or. I think it should be both and. I think it's helpful when you have laws in place that provide the outside parameters of what we expect from our society. But I also think in the absence of those laws that the next best thing is for individual companies to make up their own minds that it's important because it gives them a competitive advantage. And I had a woman come up to me a few weeks ago when I mentioned this, and she said, well, why are you making a business case? Why don't you just say it's the right thing to do? And I said, yes, it's definitely the right thing to do. But my experience in business is that when companies are just doing something they think is like the right thing to do or the nice thing to do, if the economy gets tight or if their business starts to get in trouble, the first thing that you cut are the nice to-dos. And so I approach it from a different perspective. I approach it by saying diversity is a strength. It gives you a competitive advantage to be able to attract and retain the most talented people. And you can't do that if you don't recognize the fact that they have a life outside of work. And if you just simply run them, you know, as hard as you can without any appreciation for what's good for their soul, 
then they're going to burn out and then you're going to have to hire somebody else and you're going to have high turnover and not so much loyalty. And the good news is that younger women and men are speaking up and using their voices and saying, before I decide to work here, I want to know whether if I have a child, what kind of a maternity leave or paternity leave policy I'm going to have. And what are the values of the company? And are you investing in the community? And and, and I think younger folks are much better than my generation of like you know, spending money according to their values, not shopping at places that they don't think reflect their values. And that's good. That That's going to be a disruptor and I think going to be changing the market in a positive way. So hiring used to be one of my least favorite parts of the job. It takes so much time out of your day. It keeps you from running the business. But at the same time, you have to do it if you want a great team. Today, it's a little bit different. Hiring can be easy and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash girlboss. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you're only getting the best possible candidates. In fact, it's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. We use ZipRecruiter here at Girlboss, and we love it. It's been so helpful in finding amazing new employees for our growing team. It's quick, it's easy, and it's effective. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Girlboss. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-I-R-L-B-O-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash Girlboss. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So you're on the board of directors of Lyft. Are these the kinds of conversations that you feel like you're able to have in those board meetings and those boardrooms? Is that what you bring or one of the things that you bring to the table as a guide and an advisor for companies like that? For all of the boards I'm on, I wouldn't have joined the board of any of the companies upon which I serve unless I thought that the leadership from the CEO and founders uh, throughout the senior ranks did not embrace those core values. And so that's what I look for before joining a board. Do they share my core values? Do they appreciate the fact that the we have to lead by example and that corporate citizenship, in a sense, is filling a role that we're not seeing from government? And yes, I think we should, to answer your question, have it come from government. But I also think that pressure can be put by employers who are doing the right thing on other employers to encourage them to follow suit. Got it. So you're choosing companies where you don't have to teach them those things. They come to the table sharing your values. They have to share my values. And then we have a great conversation about how to display those values. And so that's my perspective on that. I hope enriches the conversation. Yeah. I mean, to that point, would you advise women who are looking to be on boards? I think sometimes the opportunities that come up, obviously not always, are ones where it feels a little bit more like a token where it's our first board seat being given to a woman or it's our first board seat being given to a person of color. Would you advise against taking those seats because it doesn't reflect that 
culture of inclusivity you're talking about? Or do you just you take the opportunities that come to you? Otherwise, how are we going to make change? Well, there's two thoughts I think that you combine there. One is if you get the feeling that they're just checking a box. And no, you don't want to be a box checker because then, I mean, a token basically means that they're not interested in you. They just want to be able to go out and tell people I have a woman or a person of color on my board. But if what they're saying instead is, we don't have a good track record of diversity. I now recognize in this new marketplace it's important. And so I want to start somewhere. And yes, you are going to be the trailblazer on the board, but that your views will be respected and that you're there because they know you present a different perspective than everybody else. Then I think it's important for those of us who are given that opportunity to be trailblazers. And then when you go through the door, leave it open so that you can bring another person in because there is safety in numbers. I mean, I have been in the situation before, not now, but in prior boards where you're the first and then, okay, so am I the one that always has to bring up the issue about the importance of diversity? Am I the one who has to say, you know, what are we doing in hiring to make sure that we're going to HBCUs, for example? I mean, do I have to be that person that's the social conscience of the board? Um, or can I serve on the audit committee because I care about that too? And I think once you get a few people um, on the board, it's easier, number one, to speak up because you're not the lone voice in the forest but also that you can share the responsibility and you don't have to solely be viewed through that narrow lens of the person who's providing the diversity, uh, quote, perspective. Definitely. And I think that actually brings me to something that I've always heard about the culture of working in the Obama White House, which is that um, President Obama had this practice of, you know, in meetings, looking around and saying, hey, like you're someone who hasn't spoken up. What do you have to say? And really sort of bringing to the table the quieter voices in the room who maybe might not have contributed otherwise. Is that something that you saw happen? What was that like? It was empowering because even in the White House, there were shy people who were hesitant about expressing their opinion to the president of the United States, the leader of the free world. It's a little intimidating. And he knew that. And I think as a manager, and this applies not just to the president of the United States, but managers across America, you have to recognize that if you don't give people permission to speak up, often they won't. And if they don't speak up, you're not necessarily hearing an important idea that wouldn't have come to you otherwise. And he knew that, and he was curious, and he wanted to know what not just the senior people think, but he wanted to know, well, what do the junior people think? And they see the world through a different lens. And very consciously and deliberately giving people the space that they need to speak up was empowering for them. And I think as a result, he was presented with more information upon which to make informed decisions. And that's that's your job is to, even if ultimately your manager or the president doesn't agree with you, you gave him a perspective or her a perspective that they didn't have but for you speaking up. And it's a good management strategy to look around the room. And you can usually tell when someone is shy or not confident. And if somebody disagreed with President Obama, well, then he leaned in and he said, tell me, tell me why you disagree. I want to really understand your perspective. And that also empowered people to speak up. That's amazing. Uh, He created a safe space for people to not just be yes men. 
a safe space. And in fact, I was with somebody a few days ago who served in the administration with me, and he said to me that one time President Obama pulled him aside after a meeting, and he said, I want to hear you speak up because you've been awfully quiet in the meetings. And the person didn't have a policy responsibility, and he said that. And President Obama said, I still care what you have to say. It doesn't matter whether you're a policy expert. You have a view. And if you have a view, I want to hear it. Well, imagine how empowering that is when uh, somebody who's in a powerful position says to you directly, I need to hear your perspective. It's so incredible. I, I think back to so many jobs I've had where I would have been a different person if someone had tapped me on the shoulder in that way. Right? Well, of course. It, and it helps you grow. And once you say something, I mean, I've been in situations. Well, my first corporate board I was on, to switch back to the private sector, my first corporate board, I was young. I was in my early 30s, uh, mid-30s, I guess. And I was totally intimidated by the people around the table. And I thought, well, what do I know, right? And we were sitting in a meeting, and I had a question. And I thought it was a stupid question, so I didn't ask it. Don't you know, two minutes later, a billionaire who was one of the biggest investors in the company asked my question. And I thought to myself, well, why didn't I ask that question? And everybody responded to him as though it was an intelligent question. And so later I said to him, you know, I had that same question. And he said, well, why didn't you speak up? I said, I thought it was a stupid question. And he said, there are no stupid questions when you're sitting on a board. And I've held that with me now. It was That was 20 years ago plus that uh, that situation occurred. But I think we should all – It who cares if somebody else thinks it's stupid? If it's going to help you make a better decision, then you should ask the question. Wow. And that comes from that sort of like more deep-seated – fear of, you know, do I belong here? Is my worth here just as much as anyone else's? Does my question matter as much? Yes. It gets into that whole imposter syndrome, too, that I think we all struggle with to some degree. And I, I think if you have the job, you have to convince yourself, I got it because I'm, I, am, I am with merit and that my voice matters. My voice can make a better outcome as a result of my contribution, even if the decision maker ultimately disagrees with me. I've made he or she think about it from a different perspective. That feels very different, that style of leadership um, that you're talking about, and that sort of fashion of confidence, than some of what you write about also in the Obama White House about how Rahm Emanuel would lead. You said, you know, he was an equal opportunity screamer, (laughs) but you saw that the women were internalizing it more. And I'm just curious, I know you mentioned that he didn't scream at you, but how did that shift the environment? Do you see any sort of pros to leading in that way? Well, no. And I think, I mean, to just give it the full context of the situation, we were in the middle of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. We had a lot of balls up in the air and were afraid of dropping them and trying to get a a big stimulus package through Congress and then an affirmative agenda of health care and energy reform, et cetera. And it was a very kind of intense environment. And there was a lot of screaming. And I found that, uh, well, I was the only woman who had a pre-existing relationship with President Obama. And I think the rest of the women do what we all do, which is you bring your past experience to the table. And when there are a lot of loud voices in the room, sometimes we shrink. But when I brought it to President Obama's attention, he said, well, that's unacceptable. I want a culture here that 
means everybody speaks up and, and you don't have to yell to be heard. He invited the women all over for dinner, the senior women, and he and I said to them ahead of time, you got to be honest and tell him what your issues are so that he can help us solve it. And what he said, again, that was so empowering to them was, if you're not speaking up, then I am making a decision without the benefit of your thought. And I picked you, I handpicked all of you, because I know you're not going to necessarily see things the way the guys see things or the way anybody else sees them. You're going to give me your unique perspective and that's your job. And I don't care if they're screaming. Well, I do care, actually. But I don't, that can't get in the way. And so he said, give me a bit to try to help change this culture. He asked Ram to help him change the culture. And he said, if it doesn't get better, let Valerie know and we'll have another dinner. And after the dinner, the women just felt so heard and so valued by him. And I started having dinner with the group without him on a regular basis. And at the end of every dinner, I would say, does anybody need to talk to President Obama again or are we good? And they would all say, no, we're fine. And out of that, we developed relationships with one another, which gets back to my earlier point about their safety in numbers. So if you've had dinner with a group the night before and then you go into a meeting and you see around the table people who you've talked about you know, your wishes for your children or a sick parent or, you know, I was competing in this sporting event over the weekend and I stubbed my toe and I'm now, uh, you know, my ankle hurts. So you've talked about your life and it gives you confidence to speak up more so than when you think you're with a table of simply work colleagues. And I think that that exercise of us all getting together made for a, a better dynamic among us and that, it, and that allowed us to then be better contributors with the whole group. That's so incredible, that sort of sense of bringing out everyone's humanity and sort of treating each other a little bit differently. But I do want to go back to, you know, suppose you are a woman in a workplace where someone is leading with maybe fear tactics or is screaming and you don't have President Obama to pull you aside and say, you know, we're going to get through this. And maybe you don't have someone who has your back. Do you have advice to those women who sort of feel like their back's up against the wall? You're, there is that sort of like, um, our producer just used the phrase lizard brain response of, you know, fight or flight. And for me, when someone yells at me, my natural instinct is like the tears start to come and I have to just get out of the room. But how do you deal with that? Because I do think that there is a more female response to being yelled at it makes it harder. Well, one thing I have done in my life, and, and not so much in the White House, but in other jobs, is that if I saw behavior that I thought wasn't helping the group dynamic, I would pull a person aside after the meeting. Not in, I don't embarrass anybody in a meeting, but I would pull them aside and I'd say, you know, it's really hard for me to even think when you're yelling like that. Because sometimes when people are behaving in a way, they're not thinking about how it's being received. They're just thinking about how they feel. And, you know, I'm, I'm concerned, and so I'm raising my voice, and I'm trying to intimidate people. And I think we all have to try to coach the people with whom we work and do it in a way that is not uh, insulting but gets your point across. And I also, though, do say this, though, unless you don't have a choice, and there are certainly women who do not have a choice, I mean, if you're working and you've got two jobs and you are worried about putting food on the table, you may not feel empowered to speak up, which is part of why I think the rest of us have to speak up for those folks. But those of us who are in a position to use our voices, 
we have to do it. And I mean, I, I tell a somewhat funny story in my book about being nine months pregnant and working at two in the morning with a bunch of male colleagues and lawyers and clients, and we're trying to close some deal. And I get up and I say I'm going to the vending machine. And then I get up and say I'm going to check my voicemail. And then I get up and say I'm going to the Xerox machine. Two of the three that we don't ever do anymore. Uh, where was I really going? I was nine months pregnant. I was going to the bathroom. And I was so afraid to tell anybody, I have to go to the bathroom. Well, why am I? That's a normal thing that happens to women when they're nine months pregnant. You go all the time. And I was so busy trying to pretend that nothing was happening you know, below my neck because I thought people wouldn't take me as seriously. And that's, I think, a mistake because we have to... We have to help the guys understand what happens to us. And I think, you know, whenever a guy would leave to go watch a kid play soccer, everybody would go, oh, what a wonderful dad. And women in my generation were afraid to say, look, I've got to go leave for this purpose. I used to make up excuses about going to a meeting when I was really taking my daughter to the pediatrician because I was afraid what would people think of me. And I think where I have learned is that when we're, when we're empowered to do so, when we're in a position where we can leave if it doesn't work out well, we have to speak up. And oftentimes in so doing, we educate the guys in positions to make decisions to be more accommodating. And I talked about telling Mayor Daley, the mayor of Chicago, in the middle of a meeting, a very intense meeting, where he was in a bad mood about something. And he noticed I was looking at my watch and inquired as to why. And I said, you know, the Halloween parade starts in like 20 minutes and we're 25 minutes away. And he said, then what are you doing here? Well, what if I had never said that to him? What if I just sat through the meeting? I wouldn't have been there when my daughter came out in second grade costume, looking all cute, looking for her mother. Uh, so we do have to let people know what our needs are. And then we also have to work really hard. So you've got to earn the respect of the people with whom you're working. And then you've got to be able to say to them, look, in order for me to be whole and do this over the long stretch, I need X, Y, and Z. Right. Using your power to ask for the things that wouldn't be given to someone who didn't have the power to ask, I guess, as well. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to talk about something that I thought was super interesting. You talk a little bit about sort of inauguration day, you're settling into the White House, and you make this aside about, you know, you knew that race was going to be an issue in the Obama White House, um, that this was going to be something that changed the way the work of the administration was perceived, and you didn't talk about it a lot, but you felt it, and it changed the way you work. I'm curious about why? Did you feel like you couldn't talk about it or you felt like it was counterproductive? I think what we learned in the course of the campaign and certainly experience, the experience in the White House is, is that you know, race is always kind of a, it's a touchy issue in our society. When we have those conversations, uh, it makes people uncomfortable. I think they're conversations we need to be having, but it always makes people uncomfortable. President Obama gave a big speech in the middle of his primary race in 2007 and eight about race because of some of the remarks made by his former pastor. And so we, we have to be willing to explain and talk and describe for us to see beyond the color of our skin and get to the content of our character. And I think because President Obama was the first African-American president, 
he and his wife and and I, you do feel an extra responsibility uh, and that you don't feel you have the same latitude for error than you do when you're not the trailblazer. Uh, You know that not only are people going to view you by your conduct, but potentially the rest of your race. And you don't want to make it harder for the next black president or if you're a woman, the next woman president or the next gay president. You want to represent well. And that's just the reality of the situation. And so there wasn't a whole lot of point in talking about it because we all knew that we were going to be held to a higher standard. And so just get about the business of working as hard as you can, coloring well within the lines, as my father used to say even when I was in kindergarten. And therefore, you know that uh, because you know the margin of error is a lot less. And when you do speak about race, to try to do it in a way that calls upon our better selves. And so when President Obama, uh, for example, said, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon Martin. It was designed to generate some empathy for how a parent might feel about a son, and that even the President of the United States could have a son walking down the street in his own neighborhood, but be seen only as a black person who was a threat. Uh, In his speech about race during the campaign, he talked about his own grandmother, who was uncomfortable in an elevator with a group of black boys. And, And by putting it out there, and, and doing it in a way which isn't yelling or, or, or calling names. It's just stating the simple facts in the hope that people can use it as a teaching moment and rise above it. Or when he was in Charleston after Reverend Pinckney and eight parishioners were murdered in Charleston in a church, in a home of worship, where they'd been in a Bible study class with the guy who ultimately shot them for an hour. And at the end of that hour, he opens fire and the families say, we forgive you. And President Obama said, yes, and let's not just talk about taking down the Confederate flag, which is a good thing, but let's talk about what are we going to do to rebuild the schools and improve the relationship between police and communities of color. And so you have to go higher than just the current situation. And you have to call upon people to see the goodness in one another and not just the color of the skin. Yeah. Is that part of why you didn't really engage or have that much to say about, you know, things around like a Roseanne Barr or things where maybe there isn't a higher purpose? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what I said. Let's make this a teaching moment and have a conversation about, you know, teenage girls who are walking through a department store and they're being followed by the security guards, whereas uh, their white counterpart teenagers aren't. Or black boys who were all told by their parents, you have to act a certain way if you get stopped by the police, even if your white friends aren't acting the same way. You have to behave in a way that is not perceived of as a threat. Those are the conversations that I think we need to be having so that it isn't like... tweeting at somebody that you don't even know, hiding behind the veil of anonymity, which happens with social media so often, but it's sitting down and really trying to understand one another in a meaningful way when people of goodwill can do that. And I think what we tried to do so hard in the administration was to create, as you, to use your word earlier, a safe space, not just for those within the White House, but also those from the outside who wanted to come in and often had conflicting views about what the outcome should be, but to get them to listen to one another and to recognize that compromise isn't a bad word. You shouldn't compromise your values or your your character, your integrity, 
But on policy, sometimes you don't get 100% of what you want. Sometimes just good is better, and you shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of the good. So I think on that note, to close, I'd love to understand, you know, something we talk about here at Girl Boss a lot is that we want to bring access to women like you, women who have accomplished incredible things and have had these spectacular careers and, you know, you're really just halfway through it. There's so much more to come. But to bring our community access to women like you so that they can learn from you. And I'm curious, sitting where you are today, what's your advice for women of color, especially, who are coming up today, who maybe don't have to overcome some of the obstacles that you've overcome that are coming to the workplace at a different time? What's your best advice for them to be heard, to advance, to potentially make their voices and their work as known and celebrated as possible? Well, first of all, you have to work really hard. There's no substitute for being prepared so that when opportunities do knock, you are prepared for them. And you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to do it in a way where people can hear you. One thing, my mother used to never yell. She still doesn't at the age of 90. She's not a yeller. And what I find is, is that people can hear you better if you lower your voice. And so you have to be conscious of the fact that maybe people are going to be put off a little bit by you if you come at them too hard. And so just take it down a notch and try to pe- talk to people in a way where they can hear your message without them thinking it's a threat. And that's not just to, that's to men and women, regardless of color. We should be listening to each other and speaking to each other in voices that maximize our potential of being heard. And I think the other important thing is you have to have a mentor and an advocate. And I had both. I had an African-American woman who was my client, and she was also uh, my friend. She became my friend. And she went to bat for me in more ways than I could count and invested in me. And in return, I was fiercely loyal to her, and I worked uh, you know, night and day to try to meet her high expectations. But we, we all need somebody looking out for us in an organization, which means you can't just work. You have to tell your story. You have to make people comfortable with you. You have to make them want to invest in you. And uh, I suppose in closing, I would say in my book, I had a chapter called My Best Hire Ever. And it was uh, then Michelle Robinson, now Michelle Obama. And she came in for an interview where... She asked me some really tough questions about the job, not just trying to sell herself. And I think so often we sell ourselves, but we don't realize we're in the buyer's market too. And so I think for women of color, you're going into a job interview, or let's say you're a gay person, or let's say you have a disability, or any one of a million other things. You have to make sure that you're entering an environment that will embrace you and that will and will value any diversity that you bring to the table. And if you don't sense that and you don't have to take the job, then find one where you will be accepted and embraced. And then once there, take that as a license to speak up and make sure that you're advocating not just for yourself, but for others. Thank you so much, Valerie Jarrett, for joining us today. This was amazing. You are welcome. You're welcome. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Valerie Jarrett for joining us. And before you go, 
Just a quick reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, send us an email at podcasts at girlboss.com. We love hearing your thoughts on the show. That's it for now. Till next time. Bye. Bye.